Hello and welcome to the Never Heard of It podcast. I'm Craig Moorhead. And I'm Sean Harwell. And this is a show where we talk about the movies that fell through our cracks. Give us a shout out on Twitter at Never Podcast. Let us know if there's a movie you'd like us to see. And you can also reach us at NeverHeardPodcast.com. So Craig, let's get started, yeah? Let's do it. So today we're going to talk about a uh, movie from 1973 called Detroit 9000. So, Sean, you were the one who hadn't heard of Detroit 9000. What did you What did you think you were in for here? You know, I had a moment where I kept thinking about, I was like, what is this movie, Detroit 9000? I was like, oh, you know what? I bet it is. I bet it's one of these, you know, a couple indie movies are doing this now where you see a movie that's intentionally retro, you know, or intentionally nostalgic. Like, they shoot it and execute it in a way where it's supposed to literally look like it could have come out during that time period. So I was like, oh, you know what? Okay, yeah, this is this is one of those movies. It'll be fun. It'll be campy, whatever. And then... I go to see how long it is, and I see that it was made in 1973, and I'm like, sweet, okay, awesome, yeah, I didn't, I've never heard of this thing, I love 70s movies, let's do this. I press play to, to watch it, and the Miramax logo pops up, and now my head explodes, <laughs> like, I have no clue what's going on, and then I, I think again, I was like, oh, wait a second, okay, is this just, like, being re-released because it's terrible and funny in a bad way and you know i'm happy to say i'm going to go ahead and just announce this now at the top of the show that about like 15 minutes in this movie is like you know what i don't care i'm enjoying this unironically and i was glad i didn't know anything about this it was a complete mystery to me and mostly it was to me too aside from you know what i had uh, seen about it and read a little bit about it let me uh, hit you with the synopsis uh after this is from imdb as usual after a fundraiser for a black politician it, Oh, God, that's a terrible synopsis. Yeah, I'm looking at it, too. In Detroit, there's a fundraiser for a black politician. <laughs> there are actually 9,000 fundraisers. You're describing the current political process, yes. Exactly. No, uh, so there's a black politician. He's having a fundraiser in Detroit. The fundraiser is ripped off uh, by these guys in masks. And after this, this uh, politician... I believe he's a congressman, obviously is very angry about this. And because he's putting heat on Detroit, Detroit police uh, put two detectives on it. One happens to be white. That's Alex Rocco, who you might know. I certainly knew from uh, Godfather. Mo Green, yep. And a black detective, uh, Sergeant Jesse Williams, who's played by Harry Rhodes. So, yeah, so you've got a black detective, you've got a white detective. Yep. They have to work together. Detroit just had riots basically a few years ago if you're talking about 1973 so through this whole thing it's it's a uh, very racially charged i don't know about you sean i have not heard the word honky used in non-comedic circumstances uh, by both blacks and whites as many times as i have in this movie no and even beyond that i just haven't heard it used in a while period and I kind of miss it, I think, you know, it's, I don't find it completely demeaning to me as a white person, as a honky. And I say, let's open the floodgates. Uh, this movie should be a call to arms to, to work honky into more screenplays, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a line early on, right after the ripoff has occurred, and an old white guy walks in and says, you know, is this, do you think this is a, something from the black community or is this a honky <laughs> heist or something like that? It's just like... A honky caper is what he said. Is it a honky caper? A honky caper. Yes, I wrote that um, down. I enjoyed that line as well. 
you know, is, <laughs> as if that's also something that happens all the time. You know, it's like right. they really in Detroit, they've got two categories for capers <laughs> and, and one of them's a honky and you can figure out the that's other right. one, I guess. If you're a Latino and you pull off a caper, they don't even look for you. I don't even think they call like, it a caper. You're, yeah. you're sweet. Yeah. So that's the, the world this movie's living in. Uh, apparently, it was originally supposed to be set in Chicago. Oh, no they did kidding. a bunch. Of, yeah, they did a bunch of of uh, pre production for it, and then Chicago said no thanks. I wonder what it was that Chicago got turned off by it. Well, I'll tell you something. Here's a little bit of interesting trivia that I learned from our friend Roger Ebert, and then I I, I kind of got the tip of the iceberg, and I went looking for it. Okay. Essentially, what happened was Detroit's uh, real life police commissioner okayed this shoot in Detroit. Right. Okay. But that didn't sit well with the mayor. So this movie got shot. Rather, the finished movie didn't sit sit well with the mayor. The shoot happened. (laughs) Can't imagine why. (laughs) Yeah. It came out with this uh, thing, you know, uh, came out with the movie. The mayor didn't like it. So the mayor, so the police commissioner was fired because of this movie. The Detroit police commissioner lost his job because of this movie. That I hate to hear that someone lost their job because of this movie. Um, <laughs> I know. If anything, but, he should have been promoted. Well, hopefully he went on to become a producer or something. I, I think Detroit 9000 sounds better than Chicago 9000. And I don't think this movie necessarily made the Detroit Police Department look that terrible. So, No, not at all. I mean, yeah, yeah. in the end, it, it seemed very, uh, um, I don't know, it seemed to be looking on the bright side. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Arthur Marks was our director. Uh, I don't rec- recognize much else that he did aside from his work with uh, on Putney Swope. Our writer was Orville H. Hampton, who, if I'm not mistaken, Sean, you've modeled a lot of your career after. Uh, uh, cinematographer. No. Yeah. no? <laughs> but I do like his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> cinematographer was Harry J. May. Not ringing any bells. No. Editor Richard Greer, also not ri- ringing any bells. That's not Richard uh, Gear, right? Not not Richard okay. Gere. Might be his, yeah, his uh, showbiz name when he's editing. <laughs> he just adds an R. <laughs> yeah. I don't want anyone to know it's me. Um, yeah, exactly. Never heard of any of these uh, guys before I saw this. Uh, Alex Rocco was probably, well, Alex Rocco and Scatman Crothers is also in the movie. Right. So I, I definitely recognize those guys. Otherwise, sure. I was not recognizing a lot of folks in here. Be that as it may, it is. It was a very enjoyable movie. Um, I liked it a lot. Yeah, as you were sort of saying, uh, enjoying it unironically. Uh, sat down thinking I was only going to enjoy it ironically. Uh-huh. And that it would be super funny and, and lots of you know bad lines and terrible acting. And not really. I mean, sure, there are a few bits that, that stand out as, as not being too great. But yeah. honestly, this is... This is for something that that comes off essentially as black exploitation, this was pretty ambitious. I thought. It, yeah, it definitely has a, a broader production value, I think, than most of the black exploitation stuff that I've seen, and it's just a more kind of essential crime story, I think. And that's where I think the movie succeeds. Obviously, it's just it literally is just that sort of crime story. You know, it's a it's a cool kind of heisty movie to follow and then piece together what's happening and who's involved and all this stuff. There's a lot of characters. And yeah, it kind of comes together pretty well. Yeah, there was that part of me that was kind of like, man, you know, I think we really found something cool. And 
no, of course Tarantino was was there, and his footprints are all over it. But but thank goodness he did, um, because it looks great, and I assume it probably wouldn't look that great, and it probably wouldn't even be around if it wasn't for him. He honestly, he would be the ultimate guest on this show, because he could just spend four hours asking us if we've heard of this, and just us saying no, and then he'd go on to the <laughs> yeah. next title, and we'd say no. Yeah. So, Sean, let's talk about this opening a little bit. How? Uh, what, what are your thoughts? My favorite part about this opening and I gotta say the whole movie kind of hinges on this and it does bother me a little bit because I, I will never ever buy this unless a thousand people email me and tell me it's true but what happens is when the dude announces that he's gonna run for governor and that they're gonna need money to get him elected they literally bring out a basket for people to put money in. And the first thing that happens is a pair of twins walk up and take off, apparently, you know, the crown jewels of, you know, Detroit and dump them in this basket. And Craig, I'm here to tell you, in the history of campaign fundraising, no one ever has donated jewelry. <laughs> that just, there's no way that that would ever, ever happen. Like, why would anybody, you know what, I, I want to contribute to your cause, but I didn't bring my checkbook. Here's my my ring. You know, it's just, it's so... I, have, I do have to stop short of saying that that's impossible because, yeah, I have zero, not only do I have zero fundraising <laughs> experience, I definitely didn't go any fundraisers in Detroit in 1973. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very good point. It does seem like even even if this fundraiser goes as planned, you have to go fence a bunch of jewelry. Like that doesn't seem like the classiest way to 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 do a thing. That seems pretty odd. I, I definitely paused. Like, okay, that's ridiculous, and it, that again was not the reason why I was like, I'm still kind of into this thing. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's a cool, cool opening, yeah. and I think it only got better right after that. Do you remember? I think our introduction to. Alex Rocco's character? Uh, I believe he's in a hospital, (laughs) breathing through a tube, breathing through a mask, because his sinuses are so messed up. He is, quote, allergic to Motown. (laughs) (laughs) And the best line of the movie is right in that scene when the doctor tells him, or he, I can't remember what prefaces this a little bit, but he goes, you're a poor, sad, sinusitis son of a bitch. <laughs> amazing line. Absolutely amazing. Not only amazing, but um, 100% right on. This this guy is kind of a miserable SOB. This is one of the things that, yeah, you just, you just went through this great 15-minute action sequence that, that couldn't have been more early 70s if it tried. Mm-hmm. You end up in this interesting character moment where the detective... I mean, any movie like this, you would expect, uh, you know, the detective to come on. He's the macho guy. He knows how to handle all the situations. And here's this guy. He's got problems with his sinuses. Like, uh, just yeah. the nerdiest sort of malady you can have. I, I couldn't have been happier <laughs> with that introduction. And it's it's definitely something, I think, as a writer that, yeah, you got to look at that kind of stuff. Those little character moments that adds up so, so much, specifically when you're writing in a genre that has a lot of kind of just classic familiar tropes like the cop genre. Maybe this is jumping uh, too far ahead, but Bassett, uh, Alex Rocco's character, has an even weirder and and better character moment. His wife is in an asylum. Oh, God, she is. 
and 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 we know that what she's got, they can't cure, or at least they can't cure yet. I'll, I'll tell you what she, exactly what she's got: racism. She is the most <laughs> racist character I have seen in a long time. She it's is. not a skinhead, and and that's and and su- it's such a great setup because is there is there any other character who comes out that racist? No, not at all. And so basically, you're ta- so you've taken your most racist, the really the only real racist character in the story. And she's uh, she's loony. She's just completely <laughs> loony. And she has to be kept away. And she's a problem that needs to be solved, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of love that. It, it, I mean, the scene sticks out. It like really does. Thumb. Yeah. And, we, you know, we talked earlier. It's like we were looking up, trying to figure out who that actress is and couldn't, couldn't figure it out just based on the cast list on IMDb. But, man, she put her all into that thing. Like, she was, I just remember writing down, I was like, oh, man, she is acting the crap out of this this racist scene. She, uh, aside from being horribly, horribly racist, uh, <laughs> um, she also feels like uh, if her husband really loved her, he would do shady, corrupt, corrupt cop things so right. he could make a little extra money and put her in a nicer place, where I assume there would be no people of color whatsoever. Yeah, she um, wants to move out of the city, basically. And right. yeah, I mean, it is kind of funny that <laughs> the one sort of person, and look, this is not to say these cops are angels in this movie by any stretch of the imagination, but the one sort of person pushing the thing I just like, you're a cop, aren't you supposed to be corrupt? Is this dude's wife, you know? Again, it's just yeah. like there's these, all these little kind of twists on what you sort of expect uh, within yeah. this genre that I, I just thought were really, really interesting. Let me ask you this. Uh, was there ever a time in our history when dudes looked sweatier and grosser than the early 70s? No, and my wife talks about this every time I watch a movie from the 70s. She's like, I always know it's the 70s because people look sweaty. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to look past that. I mean, come on, there's so many good movies. It's like the best decade for movies. And, uh, that's true. I don't know. You I think can she... count on there being sweaty dudes if it's yeah, a 70s movie. I don't know if that's just a makeup thing, like if that changed over time. As far as how uh, film makeup evolved or... Global warming, maybe? Yeah, it's just literally hotter. They were closer to the sun (laughs) at the time. So, Sean, it seems like Bassett is going to be your main character, and he seems to have maybe the the most character development, but only by a slim margin. Like, if his wife wasn't in an asylum, I don't think he would have the most character development. Like, it's, it's pretty even. So it's, it's almost I, I more agree. of an ensemble going on, and really surprised me. I really like that. I know, and I, I think what's difficult about today's movie market and just you know getting stuff made is that you'd have to have a bigger name in your leading role, and then once you've got that name actor, you want to put him in every stinking scene, right? You know, if you're going to pay a dude $5 million or however much your salary is, of course you want to ha- you know have them be in the whole thing. Yeah, it was so refreshing to kind of see this spider web of characters in a lot of ways it's this other detective you know or sergeant jesse's movie in in many ways because he's sort of leading the plot after a while you know especially after it kind of roby comes onto the scene and then you know you get these two guys that it, it almost feels like okay are we being set up to have this sort of white cop black cop buddy kind of thing where you know, it's it's sort of it definitely predates the, the stuff that I'm familiar with, like Running Scared with Billy Crystal mm-hmm. and Gregory Hines. Remember that one? Oh yeah, and it's, and certainly Lethal Weapon, but it doesn't really manifest that way. <clears throat> no. One of my favorite scenes was the whole stakeout 
scene. You remember that business? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, <laughs> yeah, I was going to talk about that. Actually. Which, yeah, let's, let's get into that because that is sort of like the key scene that these two guys are in together, really. I mean, there's not a whole, whole lot of them taking up the same space on the screen, um, but that was one, and man, that was a good one, I thought. Uh, I will say I don't even remember exactly what they were trying to stake out or what the stakes no clue. were in the yeah. stakeout. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. There's a guy that gets shot outside, right? The, the mm-hmm. guy that they're waiting to come back to this apartment pulls up with a girl. Mm-hmm. The cops suddenly, like right before, they're, they're like getting ready to hide, and, you know, you know, take him in when he when he comes in and like, you know, beat him up, cuff him and get the information they need out of him. And instead, some cops pull up and blow the dude away. Yeah. And the whole time, I thought that was the Ferdy character because I thought that was yeah. Roby as well. I'm like, why? And it's not. Why I don't it, even know who that dude. was. Just yeah. a dude. Just a dude. And then there was that guy that was just randomly like getting out of his Volkswagen bug and gets caught in the crossfire, which was kind of hilarious. <laughs> but um, There's another facet to the scene that I actually yep. wanted to... Save for, for our favorite moment. Okay. Uh, unless you really feel like you want to talk about it here. No, but are you, are you talking about what's going on Absolutely. in the building next door? Of course. Okay, well, I'll talk about the other facet of this is okay. the character Milo, who is sort of... Oh, okay. I, I think he lives in the building. He's the guy that sort of let them into the apartment, basically, or told them like, the stuff that's been going in and out of this building. And... He basically gets called by the sergeant character, a house inward. You know, he's he's the sort of yes sir, Mister So and So, sir. Kind of, you know, I was like again, it was just like man, like I didn't see that coming. Like, there's yeah. just all these, you know, they're they're putting the politics and like the real stuff that's kind of going on in this world into these scenes, which have ridiculous stuff in them but it just always throws you this little curveball of a, a moment that that's where to me it feels like this is working off of a novel like from Elmer Leonard right. or something like that yeah so yeah so we had the stakeout and really the the only really important thing that happened in the stakeout is that they have a conversation that kind of sets up the ending mm-hmm. because nothing else about the stakeout works out for them <laughs> And it's nope. completely extraneous, and uh, <laughs> yep, and uh, a portion of it actually I think helps helped uh, up its uh, rating to to a nice solid R. Yes, but uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Should we talk about the uh, the sex scene with uh, Congressman Clayton? Absolutely, because that was pretty cool. Yeah, um, you describe it. <laughs> Don't leave any details out. Okay, so imagine <laughs> uh, Roby is hired by the congressman's people to come and, you know, do him. And she is apparently initially very excited because she knows who she's going up there to meet. And she's kind of got her either, she's got her whole persona on, but she actually seems legitimately excited about what's going on. And I think she probably, she likes the politician. You know, she doesn't really know him, just she only knows his persona. So she's excited that this is a guy she's going to meet. And so she gets up there, and of course he treats her like crap. Treats her, I mean, treats her like like property. Another great line I wrote down from the scene, because yeah, the sex does not last long. Ooh, no. And he says, I think right before they start, some guys have to make time to get their rocks off. I'm like that. And wow, I was like, oh man, that is. Uh, yeah. It's interesting because, a that a dude would say that. Right. B. 
that's it's sort of right after that that yeah roby kind of goes complete zombie on the guy basically it was like one of these things like wait a second is she going into a coma what's going yeah. on here well, let, yeah let's and talk about is, that because yeah such a cool I, moment though. i'm still I'm, I'm still like a little confused by that i mean i, I, I think too. i know what the reaction is about but it starts off where she's she's kind of playing up to it and and you know i mean totally into it and all of a sudden she stops she stops like the first thing i thought because you just see her face the first yeah. thing I thought it was either he's dead <laughs> or someone's pointing a gun at her. Like that's what it, that's what her oh, reaction looks like. That would have been pretty cool. Yeah. And 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 then it just backs up and he's just like, all done and he walks away. And it stays on her even after that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It stays on her for a long time and she's completely blown away and I'm assuming it's just the the um This is all flashback, which is another crazy thing about it. Yeah. Where there's a bit where she's talking to Ferdy, and I swear to God, I think he says something about not all brothers are going to respect you like that. Maybe she's thinking, hey, maybe she doesn't do a lot of tricks with black guys. Maybe they're mostly white guys. Mm-hmm. And this is a black dude of power mm-hmm. and prominence. And they're going to have some sort of mutual moments. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't. I, I felt like there was an expectation certainly removed from the sex itself that got crushed there. And so, yeah, that's a very weird thing for a prostitute to have her kind of uh, heart. It's not broken, but her, her, like, you know, it's like her soul got stepped on in this moment. And um, it's one of those things that just absolutely probably would have got cut out of 99% of all movies. And I'm so glad it's in this one (laughs) because it gives us something to talk about. That's the thing, the, the transition from how she is at the beginning to the catatonic state, it just feels bizarre. It's a, it's a, there's a weird rhythm to it. Yeah, it almost it, it sort of moves into a, a completely different type of drama there. Yeah. Um, and then also right after that, you know, you get the sort of the right hand man talking about that line that's on the the Jackie Brown soundtrack, yes. which I'm sure we're going to play hopefully. Yeah. And uh, about the following on a wet deck, you know. <laughs> just, <laughs> Another great line. Yeah, incredible line. Uh, that was one that had just been in my mind for a long time because I bought the Jackie Brown soundtrack back in uh, yep. 97, listened to it a lot, heard that line a million times, had no idea where it was from. And yeah, and then uh, when it jumped out at me here, it blew my mind. This this is the line here. I wonder... Sorry. Sean, shut up. We're listening to the line. The day I follow Aubrey Hill Clayton on a wet deck... That day, I cut my throat. That's good. Go ahead. Uh, do you remember, is that in the movie itself somewhere? Are they watching Detroit 9000 on TV in the background in some scene? I don't think so. I, I actually watched okay. it fairly recently, and oh, yeah, I okay. don't remember it being in the movie. He just threw that on the soundtrack. It's so yeah, weird. I always thought it was just, I, I always thought it was a part of that song, and, uh, but I don't think it is now. <laughs> but man, it's good. Yeah, I'll have to go back and watch that again. We got to talk about the last part of this movie. Okay. Because one of the longer chase sequences I I can recall. Yeah. And, yes, you get to see some mounted policemen and Detroit's finest horse cops show up as well. Uh, You know, we got got police officers who ride horses, (laughs) if you want some of them. Uh, Yeah, um, yeah, incredible. They threw the entire police force... Who knows how much crime went down that day in actual Detroit oh while they were shooting us. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a huge chase. This whole movie mm-hmm. is filled with long chases. Side note on that, I was kind of impressed with, you know, now when we have 
a foot chase or a car chase it's it's so cut up there's so many angles you can mm. you can you can take to it you can you can put cgi in there to get shots that are impossible and it was really interesting to uh watch this movie where uh, i mean they're pretty much all lockdown shots uh that they're trying to get and and it really works really well i, I never sat there and felt like wow this is a really slow boring chase like yeah like, this is a good pace like this and it's all it is is just pans basically a few tilts zooms except that they go gopro a couple times there's a couple in there yeah which that's i was right. really surprised by and with the mounted police I was like, uh-huh. "Wow!" And you can totally tell, like the the stock looks horrible. As soon as you it cut does. to it, but but you're still like, still a cool shot. I'm riding yeah. a horse and the guy's shooting. That's a gr- what a great idea. And and not only that, when the guy falls into the tires, they GoProed that one too. Yes, they just yes, they just That's dropped right. a 16 millimeter camera right in there. Um, so yeah, the chase was great. Yeah, I was not bored during this chase. I definitely felt the length of it just sure. being so because again, it's like I was surprised like, man, this is still going. I don't quite know who they're chasing, but they're going to get them and they're going to kill them and by god, they're going to throw everything they got at yeah. it. Another interesting thing about that chase, which especially thinking about it from a writing standpoint, these those things are so so hard to write and make interesting sure. on a page. There is zero dialogue in that chase scene. Yeah. And that's like another thing that you would not see today. You would have some quippy one-liners or at least some sort of like, you know, tete-a-tete between uh, the main cop and the guy that he's chasing, you know, throughout this thing. You don't get that here. The only thing that's talking are the bullets. Uh, sc- screenplay-wise, if you're writing, if you had to write a chase like that, and really no one... I think would write that entire chase down because most I, of it is just guys no. shooting and guys shooting back and then shooting some more. And I don't think any producer or studio would encourage you to write a chase right. like that because they are you're out of your mind. Yeah. We're not doing this. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing from a screenplay standpoint. Uh, still, even if you had a normal chase, you know, just pages of uninterrupted action without quippy one-liners, which which always feel horrible and false when you're sitting there like. Where you feel like you need to break up the stuff, but who's going to say something? No, the, and the big danger would be that this is happening in the last, <laughs> what, uh, half hour? Not even half hour, last 20 minutes of your movie. Like, yeah. So when you know you are demanding your reader's attention the most, you're going to drop in a 10-page dialogue-free, uh, <laughs> you know, Bonnie and Clyde style shoot 'em up, yeah. blast away uh, in the script. I think yeah, you would, yeah, you would, you would hear about that. Yeah, um, and but I'm going to assume that this script, as written, was probably, and then the cops chase the bad guys and shoot all of them, but then they get Ferdy. Because, yeah, I mean, most of that chase was just, we can shoot tons of stuff, and let's use yep. all of it. Let's use the cops um, that we got in the cars. And, and the great cliche of, this is such a great um, example of what has been made fun of so much by now, which is guy, uh, shootouts where no one ever reloads. I mean, yep. this is every kind of gun you can think of. We got M16s, we got shotguns, yep. we got Berettas, we got police revolvers. <laughs> Nobody ever, re- no one reloads. What I think, you know, plot wise supports this entire chase is that after that, you sort of find out that there's an inconsequential nature to this entire crime, which is that that Indian who was supposed supposed to be the kind of like liaison between the guys that they pulled the heist and the guy that they're selling the jewels mm-hmm. to, right? Who was supposed to take the stuff over to Canada? He accidentally shot himself. 
And that's why the doctor had to be called in. And so it's like, I love that. I mean, that it reminded me of something like Burn After Reading or The Killing, you know, Kubrick's The Killing, where it's just like, oh, all this for, for what? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's always the best crime movies, I think, have that little moment where some bit of stupidity, or even you think about Fargo, it's like, you know, the little things that lead to the demise of yeah. the crime uh, being successful. And Loved it. I, I thought that was a sort of really good way to conclude that. And then you get this great cut to a guy walking with a yellow suitcase when you find out that, yeah, it's Ferdy had hid the money in the yellow suitcase and it wasn't there. He doesn't know who took it. Did you immediately know that that was Bassett as soon as you saw the suitcase? Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I was so happy. I was like, ah, yeah. why didn't I think of this? Yeah. Because he'd been gone yeah. forever, right? <laughs> he just disappeared mm-hmm. from the movie. <laughs> well, and again, it, 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 it fit in with that Elmore Leonard feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, because the scene just before it is Jesse and Ferdy going to get the bag and then Ferdy realizing it's not there. Said, yeah, it's in this yellow bag and it's supposed to be here. And you cut to yellow bag. And yeah, you know, it's got to be him. He's he's taking the money. He's getting on a cruise ship. Well, the cruise, the whole cruise ship thing was like, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, well, we can't find the guys. It was like trying to get in the water or whatever. And it's like, yeah, well, that's what I would do. You know, cruise ships, nobody, cops never, what do they look first? They look trains, planes, and, right, and, right, right. you know, the bridges. And so it's like they yep. never look on the cruise ships. And so, yeah, it was like, obviously, I should have seen that coming a mile away. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. I want, I'm not too no, ashamed totally to admit. Uh, and, and, and the great thing is, even though it wasn't a, a main, uh, even though it wasn't a big source of tension throughout the movie, now you have this, this bit of tension where you're like, okay, well, you know, this cop who's been honest up until now, is he, has, has he turned? Uh-huh. Is, you know, what's, what is happening right here? And that, and, they took, they definitely took uh, the high road through that whole scene because they there could have been so many so many ways to do this where yeah we think for a second he's gonna t- take the money and then he pulls out the gun and he he busts them and uh, they didn't do that at all or you or you just think that he's gonna be the guy that takes the money and then Jesse comes in and stops him and they have to have their moment where Jesse is faced to decide am I gonna shoot this cop friend of mine because he's obviously right. doing a bad thing or you know it just all those ways and they left it a question throughout alex rocco dies in the ambulance you know with us not knowing with jesse not knowing whether yeah. his intent nobody was knows true. and i did love the fact that there was an emt in the back of that ambulance who did absolutely nothing when this dude died right in front of him just yep. just none yeah. nope he was not on the clock i guess <laughs> He's like, yeah, sorry, man. Yeah, if, if you look closely in the background, he takes a bite out of a sandwich. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. What do there. you think? If you want to, let's play a guessing game. What do you, do you think he was going to take that money and get his racist wife out of that hospital? Do you think, like he said, he was about to make a million dollar bust? My feeling was, as I watched the scene itself, my feeling was that even he's not sure what he's going to do. Yeah. Interesting. Um, it, it, that for some reason that was the tension that I was feeling because he, I mean, he's doing everything a detective might do, except that most likely no one knows he's there. In fact, definitely no one knows he's there. So he's doing this pretty much on his own. Otherwise, we would have had some sort of scene set up where, you know, backup was ready to, you know, and no, no, nothing like that. That's a good point. Actually, I hadn't thought about the fact that. If he had completely planned to make a bus, yeah, why wouldn't he tell someone else that this is the plan? Right. Or uh, even just ask for, you know, 
we got a call from Bassett. He said to meet him at the cruise ship. You know, that kind of thing. It's like yeah. where the cops don't know what's going on, but they know to go there. Or call Jesse, because the one guy that he, you think he can trust, you know. Right. Otherwise, he's, he's, a, he's an honest cop. Like, he's an honest, straightforward cop who clearly knows what's going on. He's the only one who doesn't see the, the heist as a racial thing. Right. You know, um, from the get-go. And, uh Yeah. But then, as Jesse tells us at the end, the one thing he can't figure is he was was he the worst cop I ever met, or was he the best? Yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't know, man. I, you know, in a better world, uh, I think old Detective Sergeant Bassett is riding off into the sunset with that yellow suitcase and money, leaving his racist wife behind in Detroit. And moving to Florida, setting up shop somewhere, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. they kind of want a happy ending for that. Or just at least get his like sinus problem under control. Uh, fine film overall. I think we all learned something. It's a really good one to discover. You know, I'm glad that Tarantino kind of brought it to light and it's, it's great that, you know, we have filmmakers like him and Scorsese and stuff that are constantly kind of pushing these lesser-known movies and stuff that just got washed over and, and passed over. And, and like us. So like yeah. Tarantino and Scorsese and, and pretty much us. And maybe not even in that order. Yeah, no, yeah. Because I don't see them doing it right now. I don't see them doing a podcast. I don't know. It seems pretty obvious. Yeah, but it was a cool pick. I'm glad that you knew about this thing. I had no, it still had no clue and... Um, you know, I don't even think Tarantino. That was like that Rolling Thunder yeah. company. I don't even think that exists anymore. It doesn't. They only released like six or seven movies uh, before it just kind of went kaput. How would you put this in theaters today exactly? I yeah. mean, uh, other than Tarantino's, and maybe they didn't. Maybe it just went straight to video, or or it's just a video re-release. But well, no, they did. They they released it at least for a short time. Oh, cool. Uh, and that's the only box office. Records they had, but it was like three thousand dollars. Yeah. So it wasn't even like a huge thing. I think that's, you know, that's probably why it didn't last very long. And I remember even seeing those, seeing those Rolling Thunder videos in in the in the stores when you used to go to a store to to rent something, and uh, and even then seeing it that it was you know Tarantino presents this, and I. Just not being excited about that at all. Yeah, you know, we have to remember that. Yeah, like after Pulp Fiction, it was easy to be completely sick of Tarantino. Um, yeah, because this well, is because everyone's trying to rip off Tarantino. Everybody's ripping him off. Tarantino himself was in your face all the time. Even with some of the you know the Grindhouse project that he and Rodriguez did, you know that didn't you know it didn't set my heart on fire too. It's just like maybe subconsciously when I saw that Miramax logo, maybe that's what I was thinking. I was like, here we go, something that. I'm supposed to like because it's so bad or whatever. But I, I want to—I do want to stress, like, if you haven't watched this movie yet, I don't think it falls into that category. I think no. there's enough here that's just seriously, genuinely good with with genuine intentions of making a good movie. And then, yeah, you get some really fun stuff like that amazing car crash fireball from hell, yeah, uh, explosion, yeah, and some 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 of those terrifically ridiculous lines. One of which, I don't want to leave this one behind because this is another one of my absolute favorites was, uh, I think when when Bassett is talking to the madam of the, the brothel, they're talking about Roby and she says, you know, she, she's got a college degree. And he goes, in what? Screwing? And like the way he says it, 
I, st- I still don't know. There might be part of him that thinks like, can you, you can get a degree in screwing? That's amazing. Like, how did she do that? What college did she go to to get this degree in screwing? Yeah. Like he's, I'm going to get that. He sells it so perfectly. It's really another cool performance beat from Alex Rocco. He's our greatest actor, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Sean, let's take a second and talk about favorite moments of the movie. Uh, and there are a lot of great moments in the movie. Yeah. Um, but I have to go with during the stakeout. Okay, yeah. Okay, up until this time, <laughs> you're hearing a lot about racial strife in Detroit. You're seeing a lot of guys going head to head, a lot of tension, a lot of anger over a lot of issues that they hold near and dear. Like very serious about oh, yeah. the things that are important to them. And then for seemingly no reason, we, we have the stakeout <laughs> and Jesse uh, opens a window and kind of looks out. And across the way, conveniently, in another window in another building, you see two lesbians just starting to go at it. Just starting to, yeah. To and they're 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 peeling off the they're peeling off the clothes. Mm-hmm. They're getting naked. Yep. Jesse's just taking it all in. Taking just it all in. Totally illegally, just voyeuristicking their love making. Well, if they didn't want him to see it, they they would have closed the curtains, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're exhibitionists, and they had it coming. Sure. Yeah. Uh, no, but um, then what? And, it, you know, it turns turns around and says to Alex Rocco, you know, something to the effect of like, oh, "Looks like the entertainment's out there." You know, let me let me bring up no, a very me. specific detail. He doesn't just turn around; he walks away from the window to go over to the table and tell him this, which is not right. you can't see out the window from this table. So right. instead of like you and me, we, we probably would have gone to get the binoculars. He is like, man, you know, I, I, I've seen this before. Let me. And I was like, I can't believe he's walking away from this. Walks away. Okay, well, continue. I, I, I will. I, I will fully admit, twelve-year-old me would definitely have just set up shop. <laughs> I would have popped some microwave popcorn, <laughs> put on my jams, put, and sat down, put on your jams, and watched the show. <laughs> What what what's so, it, it's just it's it, it's it, it's so striking to me where you have all this very serious talk about about these you know injustices that are going on and then you have a cop who's just straight up just watching people do it without their knowledge whatsoever and that was like okay uh, you know everyone everyone enjoyed that show do they stop there though Sean they no, don't they go back they don't they go right back to it and it gets even better, yep. because not only does he now go back to check them out, knowing they're there, mm-hmm. knowing that it's not really nice to watch people through their windows. Oh, but I was, I was like, okay, yeah, he's 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 got to go back. Okay, thank you, because it, we, we would all go back. Yeah. So he's so and he, so he's watching them now, and then it breaks into there's it breaks into a cat fight. Somebody comes in unseen. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining a girlfriend of one of the girls. And now this person is, is throwing one person across the room and beating up the other one. Cut back to our cop, and, and you get little more than a, <laughs> well, what are you going to do? Yeah. And it's just like, dude, what? Are, what? Someone like, could be about be, to get murdered. Yeah, it could be a straight-up murder, definitely an assault going on. There's some serious stakes, serious, like, just adult human beings over there that are just in, in, in trouble. And he's, uh, oh, those naked women. <laughs> There for my entertainment. It was very striking to me. Uh, I, I thought that was pretty, pretty ridiculous. Okay, Craig. Uh, I think it's that time to figure out what we're going to talk about next week. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. 
gonna uh, name a movie, you're gonna tell me if you've ever heard of it. The first movie is Kung Fu Panda. Uh, yes. Cool. I like that movie. It is good. Second movie is George Washington. Sweat it yeah. out. Sweat it out. No. Okay. Yep. No. I've seen it. I've seen it. Craig. Mm. Have you heard of a movie called Two Faces of January? Sean? Yes, Craig? I've never heard of it. Hey, here we go. So we're going to talk about Two Faces of January. I'm excited about this. I'm not going to tell you exactly why, but... We're going to watch it. I think it's on Netflix right now. Check it out and let us hear what you think about it after we talk about and, it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you can let us know what you think about this podcast or any podcast. Yeah, any of them. Or any movie or anything anything at all. We're on the Twitters at uh, Never Podcast. We are online at NeverHeardPodcast.com. And if you need to find us any other way, you can hire a private detective because we're not just going to give you all of our details. No, and but I would I would suggest getting someone from Detroit. Please. But Sean, there's a good one. Thank you very much for uh, talking with me about Detroit 9000. And uh, you have a honky day. <laughs> That's the only kind I have, Craig. Here's that. Here's that.